Welcome to episode 51 of the Lebanese Physicians uh, Podcast. And today we'll be discussing uh, gaps and in, in innovations in mental health care in Lebanon and the MENA region. And our uh, guests today are uh, Dr. Sarah Catherine Morani, who's currently a psychiatry resident in Miami, and Dr. Muhammad Al-Jadri will be introducing her soon. And we have Dr. Muhammad Al-Jadri, who's back for more. He's been out for a while, uh, family medicine graduate from the American University of Beirut, and then uh, recently moved to Saudi Arabia and has been out of commission for a while, but now he's back, <laughs> back in action. Welcome back. It's good to be back. And if you can introduce uh, Sarah, it'd be great. Definitely, definitely. Uh, I met uh, Kara actually back at AUB, and now she's currently a first-year resident of the University of Miami Miller School of Medicine psychiatry program. She's the founder of Tabir, a tech startup, an application that combines artificial intelligence and one of her research interests, actually, and she combines it with psychiatry, and it's specifically aimed at tackling mental health in the Arab world. She's also interested in systemic change in mental health, and she has on multiple publications, which we'll probably have the plugins uh, later, uh, tackling the necessary policy reforms to mental health systems in Lebanon specifically. She is also involved in community psychiatry initiatives, uh, such as Hashit Khil, Lebanese online mental health support group, and she is excited to work on many of projects during her residency. So I think we're going to have a very rich discussion with Kara. Yeah, yeah. Welcome, welcome to both of you. And Sarah, it's great to have you on the podcast. So uh, as, we, as we were discussing more innovations in mental health care, can we discuss a bit the traditional mental health care model in, in Lebanon and the MENA region currently? Sure. So I can talk about it. Oh, well, before I get into that, I want to say thank you so much for having me, of course. Um, and um, yeah, no, it's a, it's an honor to be here. And yeah, I'm expecting some very rich discussion also based off of like some of the, the, the I listened to some of, you know, the previous episodes. So and I'm very excited for what, what it is that we're going to be able to produce out of all of this. So thanks again. Um, and so basically, um, first of all, I'll kind of talk about what the classic and traditional model is for psychiatry, which is kind of also what's practiced in the Middle East, which is basically what's called the chemical theory of psychiatry, which I'm sure you've all heard about, which is basically that psychosis is because dopamine is in excess, or mania is because of this, or depression is because of a, of a depletion of serotonin. So this is kind of a very um, traditional and, if you like, retro um, and in my opinion, a bit reductionist view of what is at the root of mental health. And then based off of that theory of how we conceive of the mind, you have medications which are tailored to this, which is basically to fix mental health disorders. You have to increase your serotonin, you have to decrease the, the dopamine, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That's kind of the classic model. And the, this is, you know, what we practice throughout the Middle East. You know, a lot of sometimes treatment modalities can get very, very pharmacology heavy. Um, and then more specific to the Middle East is that, you know, we, we learn about something called the diathesis model early on, which is basically where, sure, there might be pharmacological, maybe chemical factors, but also there's sociological and psychosocial and et cetera factors. So in the Middle East already, I see that there's maybe a lot more of a focus on this, the, the chemical and biological factors versus maybe looking at a bit of a broader picture, you know, looking at, for example, cultural factors, genders, uh, sexual, uh, sexual orientation, et cetera, et cetera, which are all factors that play in a person's mental health. And um, Another thing which is maybe specific to Lebanon, although now the current events are kind of deconstructing that, 
is that a lot of people kind of forget, maybe because there's been this national amnesia of what's happened in Lebanon, we forget how much trauma has been carried over from the civil war, from, you know, from generations of, in fact, um, of civil strife and, and political unrest. And we forget how these things can impact us, even though we have kind of normalized them. You know, I'm talking even I'm talking pre-explosion, pre pre-everything, because that's kind of now with the explosion and the pandemic, we've kind of begun to finally remove the tablecloth and kind of see the rot that's that's in the it kind of in the in the woodwork of the table, so to speak. So that's finally unfolding. But definitely before that, it does seem like we kind of forget how stressful life is. In Lebanon and what we've been through and what the older generations have been through. So that's kind of what I've seen. And then with regards to the chemical framework, now even in the West, people are moving more towards um, less, less like focusing on, okay, it's the chemicals that are imbalanced and maybe looking more at like, for example, how the microbiome, in fact, of a human being might be interacting with brain chemistry to be able to cause inflammation. And your inflammation seems to be also very much implied in, in your pathology. And then what's really exciting and what I'm really interested in, if you'd like me to speak more about that, if you'd like me to take the direction, the direction of the conversation more towards that, is something called neural computation. Um, so have you guys ever ever heard about that? Or, you know, like also, what are you guys thinking about some of the things that I said? Yeah, definitely. So uh, I think this was a like, overview and a big uh, picture of uh, the, the different modes approaching uh, psychiatry. And I guess our experience in Lebanon, like we all know, like it's the nation on Xanax, like everyone and their mother is on every sort of anxiolytic. Every house has someone uh, with depression and we really, uh, like you said, uh, a one-dimensional approach with psychiatry. It's very based on uh, pharmacopsychiatry. Uh, it's very uh, uh, big on medication. Just just take a pill and you let it. And there, there hasn't been a lot of effort uh, in terms of um, uh, psychotherapy and different uh, modalities of maybe addressing the root causes of uh, all the psychiatric illnesses. We we talk a lot about the biopsychosocial model, but we focus a lot on the bio and uh, kind of reduce the psycho and social impact. So I guess uh, a good way to uh, move the conversation forward is talk about maybe about the uh, role of uh, AI and innovation. Uh, and uh, But maybe before, before we go to that, maybe we want to address a little bit like the gaps, current structure in terms of like systemic barriers for people reaching uh, those types of uh, psychotherapy. Sure. So um, if we're talking specifically in Lebanon, um, the gaps are a plenty, as you can as you can imagine. So one of the gaps that we can already think of is that there's a huge shortage of both mental health and psychiatrists, like mental health professionals as well as psychiatrists. You only have about 1.5 psychiatrists for 100,000 people in Lebanon. So already that's a major issue. And the problem is that, in Lebanon, because we face collective trauma, a lot of mental health uh, practitioners also now suffer from mental health problems who then need mental health practitioners, but there's a shortage. So it's this kind of vicious cycle of shortage, which, you know, is kind of repeating itself. So um, definitely that's one of the gaps that we see. Another gap is, you know, something that's been present before the events of 2020. 
have unfolded, which is that um, mental health is still very taboo. You know, we have an attitude of basically, which is, you know, um, you just have to stop feeling the stuff and you'll be fine. Just repress, repress, repress. Um, it is kind of like a popular coping mechanism of choice in the country, unfortunately. And so that's definitely something that will prevent someone from seeking care because you know they're embarrassed or it, uh, it threatens their identity as someone who's supposed to be strong or you know um it could sully the reputation of the family for example if, uh, if they were to be someone who seeks mental health so that's another issue another issue as well and this is a, a study actually that was uh, that was done by Idrak, the the mental health ngo actually showed that one of the the main factors that actually stops people from seeking mental health isn't taboo, although it is an important issue, but it is actually lack of awareness about the resources. Because when you think about it, a lot of the resources that we have in mental health are centralized in Beirut, for first of all. Like you don't have a lot of stuff near the borders, um, like in Akkad or you know, in other areas, basically, especially near the Israeli and Syrian borders, where there's a huge, huge shortage of any kind of um, any kind of you know, health worker or any kind of, of provider of aid in general. Um, there's that. And then another problem is that a lot of the way that we talk about mental health is in English. We don't have as much of a developed maybe language for mental health in Arabic. Um, so that's one issue which makes it less accessible maybe to people who don't speak English. And then another problem is that a lot of these kinds of resources are also advertised on social media. And like stuff like Instagram or Twitter, which is again kind of targeting maybe a specific type of generation and a specific type of population, um, whereas some of the more effective campaigns to be able to reach a broader audience would be national TV. But the last time campaigns were done on national TV was actually before, before the pandemic started um, for, for some reason. So that's, that's another gap there. Um, and, then and then reimbursement is a big deal, right? A lot of uh, third-party payer insurance don't cover psychiatric illnesses, uh, the mon and the stuff doesn't cover psychiatric or admission. Right, right. And, and actually, I remember once I did uh, a podcast with, uh, with doctors Malouf and Rendur uh, right. on their study that was published after the August 4th uh, explosion. And one of the things that came up was what you just discussed, Muhammad Ali, is that people with, with low resources did not seek actually mental health care. And part of it could have been related also to lack of awareness, but also to lack of funding. For sure. be able to afford the mental health care services for their kids. Right. Um, and yeah, and that, that brings up another topic, which is that um, the mental health branch of the public health of the, of the, of the Ministry of Health um, is not technically officiated. And actually, there was a draft law which was created to reform the only law that we have, in fact, which is pertaining to mental health. And part of that um, that draft, which was endorsed by the, by, the, um, by the mental health branch, was supposed to make it a legitimate branch so that they could get more funding, so that then the state could fund more, uh, more hospital stays, more, you know, more outpatient services. But till now, this, this draft hasn't been officiated. It's basically kind of lying in a drawer somewhere. Um, yeah, so that's, that's another very important issue, especially in light of the economic crisis. Yeah, and I always say, like, follow the money. And once you figure out that uh, psychic illnesses is not even recognized as a legitimate illness, like in public insurance, private and public insurance schemes, 
um, it makes sense that we don't have any inpatient capacity and the outpatient capacity is limited. And a lot of patients, when they want to seek uh, either a psychiatrist or a psychologist, the waiting times are uh, really very long compared to other services. Uh, and people in Lebanon aren't used to wait months and months to get an appointment. They they usually expect a quick uh, appointment. And unfortunately, uh, with a very few uh, psychiatrists and a very few uh, psychotherapists that we have, the waiting lists uh, are very long, unfortunately. Right, right. Yeah. And it's unfortunate that even the resources that could be that could accommodate people who don't have the financial means to be able to, to seek them out, even even those are, again, like not very advertised. So it's just kind of just kind of limitations on every direction, really, on every front. And, and, and this is, I think, a segue into, I mean, traditionally, right, where it's just discussing mental health services were localized to Beirut, people would have to come in person to see mm -hmm. somebody in clinic. But I think mm -hmm. the pandemic may have changed things somewhat. So mm -hmm. have there been any uh, advances uh, or innovations in uh, online and digital mental health services in Lebanon? And uh, what are the future plans for that? I know, uh, Sarah, you've been involved in, in some of these uh, projects. So if we can discuss a bit some of the innovations that have already happened and some of the future projects uh, on the horizon. Sure. So, okay. So, I did a small initiative. I wouldn't call it innovation. It was just me like in a pandemic and I was like lonely and sad and just studying for finals. Um, and um, it, this this is basically what Fashet Khalid was, um, which is what I wanted to do. And so um, that's why I thought, okay, everyone's everything's gotten on Zoom and people are you know frustrated and not just because of the pandemic and because of the loneliness but because of yeah, the, the more pressing issue was the financial crisis this was post-revolution and so um and on top of everything no one could even talk about it because of this you know further further isolation and so i thought why don't we use this new thing that's become popular the zoom and just create these little chat rooms, these support groups, basically, not group therapy, but like places where you have a moderator, kind of like, you know, an Alcoholics Anonymous, where you have a member of the community and you're all together. And there's specific goals, like there's the Yalom's 11 goals of, uh, of a support group, which is basically you create um, hope building techniques, you share resources, and then ultimately you have to create catharsis together. So I worked with a psychotherapist on this and together we started moderating these chat rooms where basically we would just kind of like advertise the initiative everywhere. And then anyone could basically register. And then we would just sit and talk and together we would kind of, you know, try to tackle these 11 objectives, which is that everyone talks, everyone vents their frustrations, we exchange resources, we help each other out. And then ultimately we reach this catharsis that we weren't able to achieve because of, you know, the separation. So, um, I don't like, I wouldn't call it innovation again, because again, I was just like in my room, like on Zoom with, you know, Dr. Majalani, who was helping me out. Um, but definitely it does, it is a good segue because it is kind of like the, it, it is kind of, you know, um, a very proto, uh, proto telehealth kind of experience, which is, you know, what, what you're basically uh, alluding to. So telehealth specifically, um, the actual innovative thing. Um, so telehealth has become 
more popular in Lebanon, you do have several companies which have adopted the model of basically having therapists which um, have reasonable fares. And uh, one of the companies, for example, is Mindsome. Um, and what they do is that they'll have a roster of basically psychotherapists that you can register with, you can take an appointment and you have unlimited texting with this therapist. I think you buy weekly packages or something like that. Um, and then you talk with this therapist and you, um, you, you talk with them online. And um, that's one of the models that it seems like has, has become popular, not just in Lebanon, but also in the rest of the Middle East. You have firms in Dubai, you have firms in Saudi Arabia doing this. I think the, the name of the Saudi Arabian firm is Lebay, if I'm not mistaken, or something like that. Um, not yeah. Sure. yeah, and then there's Shazlong, which is in Dubai. Yeah, yeah. Shazlong is really big. Yes, Shazlong is getting very popular. So you definitely it has become a popular model in the Middle East. And, and why shouldn't it be? I mean, it's so it's so convenient. Um, people might feel like, you know, it's it's respecting their privacy a bit more because then they don't have to be in a waiting room. And then, you know, maybe potentially meet up with someone that they know, which is the kind of like the ultimate fear in our culture. Um, and yeah, so definitely has become a lot more popular in Lebanon. And then in the States, they've even started producing like telehealth firms for psychiatrists where they just kind of, you know, have like a bunch of people in, in their employment and they just see patients uh, remotely. So yeah, it's become huge. And, and are there- Yeah, and I guess- Go ahead. Actually, I'll just ask one, one simple question. Are there any clinical trials uh, showing the efficacy of telehealth services compared to traditional health services? Uh, in psychiatric care? So I can tell you just about one specific study I know of, which had to do with um, psychosis and schizophrenia. So um, because funnily enough, the, the well, not funnily enough, but interestingly enough, the rates of schizophrenia have increased during the pandemic for several reasons. And what they showed was that telehealth was um, an adequate method to be able to um, um, deliver care to schizophrenic patients during the pandemic like to a similar degree as face-to-face -face appointments. So yes, it can be it can be very efficacious. And it, and it's good when you think about it, it's convenient, you feel more anonymous and you feel more comfortable maybe because you're in your own environment. There might be that limit of maybe you're not adequately reading the body language of the other person that's with you, but so far the the benefits have seemed pretty good. Yeah, and sorry, Hamad Ali, I think you had a, you had a question. Uh, no, I was just like saying, um... The cool thing about like all those telehealth initiatives, including Fashat Khila, it's honestly like a way to democratize uh, seeking uh, therapy, right? We were talking about how the current structures uh, have barriers uh, and how sometimes those structures are exclusionary. So maybe mm -hmm. one way to uh, bridge the gap in terms of uh, access uh, and affordability uh, is uh, through uh, going online. Uh, of course, that brings up a whole set of other problems in terms of bridging the digital uh, divide, but it does, it does solve one problem in terms of affordability and accessibility, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and then you could make the argument that like, you know, a lot of people have smartphones and you can kind of just log into the thing or um, especially because if you make an effort especially to advertise on platforms that everyone has access to, then again, you're also like kind of trying your best at least to reduce these, these divides as much as possible. But definitely, yeah, they're, they're, you'll have age limitations. You will have like social, uh, social socioeconomic class limitations, but it, you're right, it is, a, it is a good way to bridge 
absolutely. Yeah, and I guess um, we tend to think of like, at least in our discussion, like I want to make sure like we're not uh, 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 reducing the population and giving it one dimensional. Population is obviously diverse. You have different needs, and you have different groups that are not homogenous at all, and that have different needs and different gaps that need addressed. So. Uh, I don't know if this is like a good point to talk about your uh, involvement with other uh, uh, innovations. And if you want to talk a little bit more, uh, Tabir, maybe. Sure. Um, so the blurb version of Tabir, just because it's still under development, is basically um, me and uh, a colleague of mine. Um, uh, we're good friends because both of us have interest in artificial intelligence. We found out that there was this competition at uh, AUB, which was this entrepreneurship competition um, for engineering. And one of the, the categories was artificial intelligence. So we kind of bumped heads and uh, we like decided to incorporate both of our research interests, which for me was psychiatry with AI and his was AI and software development. And we created basically a program that's still under development whereby we could use artificial intelligence by training models through uh, different modalities, be they uh, video, be they speech, etc., to be able to make predictions, to be able to even maybe uh, deliver certain um, uh, uh, some some element of support to people, and all of it in Arabic because the vast majority of the resources are in English, um, and so. One of these things, like you were saying, one of the, the ideas behind this was to be able to bridge this gap because you can download the application from your smartphone um, and uh, you could basically have an avenue to be able to vent wherever you're, wherever you're at. Um, and the nice thing is that a lot of NGOs actually will um, provide um, interventions, applications and stuff like that for free to um, to vulnerable groups that basically, like, for example, refugees, etc. And so um, there are a lot of avenues to be able to give access to these kinds of this kind of application to people who are otherwise don't have necessarily the means. But even even without the help of these NGOs, the, the application is, is pretty accessible financially to everyone. And so that's kind of, that's kind of tabir in a nutshell. Again, a, a work in progress, but um, yeah, and so we ended up winning the competition, and now we're we're working on it, and we're we're really excited. And um, another maybe unfun fact about um, artificial intelligence applications in the MENA region is that I think literally all applications using artificial intelligence to deliver care to people in the global south are all created by the Western world. So I think it's also important to mention that in this digital age, it's important to have digital agency. The artificial intelligence applications that you use to deliver care should be created by the communities, in my opinion, that you are trying to heal because it can't always just be one person delivering resources to the other. There's a lot of, I think it can it can get quite problematic. And so that's another thing that we wanted to tackle and that we hope is going to be a trend in the future. And I agree. I think, I mean, there's there's cultural differences between among different countries. I mean, countries are very far apart and there's a lot of cultural differences. So if you develop an application by somebody in the Western world that does not necessarily mesh with the population in a, in a country that's 7,000 miles away. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Now, 
think what you're saying is very important. And we're just talking about like how the society in Lebanon and the Middle East and North Africa is not genus. Like it's very heterogeneous. There's a lot of diversity. And uh, only someone who grew up in this uh, culture can understand the nuances and can have uh, an app that, uh, or a platform or a model, whatever you want to call it, to understand the, those nuances and to address uh, diversity. Um, so no, I want to salute you and congratulate you on all your efforts and wish you the best with the Tabir. Uh, and I know you're going to do two great things. Thank so you. are there are there are there other similar apps uh, in the Western world that have been successful? In the Western world, yes. However, um, they tend to use one modality. So it'll either be like, for example, only text or, well, yeah, but basically most of these kinds of applications are only text. In academic context, they might be a bit different, but if we're talking like both commercial and academic, which is the directions that we're taking, um, then not not all of them, no, there, there doesn't exist something that has, is, is a multimodal basically um learning model um and then in arabic definitely it doesn't exist so that's something that we really wanted to tackle and i think um i don't know uh if you want to comment maybe about um some controversies with a lot of those uh, uh telehealth and uh, uh new, new modalities uh if you want to talk maybe about cerebral i know there was a big controversy with them a few months ago how they were pushing ADHD uh, medications, for example, and how they were being pressured by patient satisfaction, right? So uh, patients were going onto those apps expecting uh, to get their medication prescription, uh, mm. and sometimes it wasn't uh, indicated. So there was a big controversy, and a lot of uh, people working for Cerebral like, recently came out and spoke against uh, the practices. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you raise a really, really important and interesting point. Um, I've been seeing this a lot more now that I'm in the States, which is that mental health has become a lot more consumerist. Um, like the, 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 it's insane. The, the amount of advertisements you're getting now for like Prozac or whatever, and the way they're pushing it as kind of like this new product and your mental health is now a new product that you need to spend money on so that we can profit off of it. Like it's, it's become like, I think it's almost kind of like one of the disadvantages of mental health becoming such a hip thing, which is that now, now maybe it can be used for profit in the wrong way. And definitely that's something that I've, that I've witnessed here. Um, and with regards to other controversial points regarding um, new modalities in general, um, one of the problems with artificial intelligence anywhere, but also in mental health, is that it really is very much shaped by the programmer. And so if the programmer has a very biased and very you know, um, narrow outlook, and especially if the programmers are from a very homogenous class, then you're not necessarily going to collect the appropriate amount of data sets to be able to program your model. And so your model might not be effective for communities that are more vulnerable and that are minorities. And that also applies to, for example, detection in academia, when it, you're talking about detection of autism, for example, or other kinds of disorders um, using artificial intelligence, there exists a huge gap in diagnosing women and people of color for all of these different things because the models don't necessarily incorporate a varied amount of data sets. And that's another problem with using these modalities. So that's another controversy. And that's why you have to be very careful 
of who you hire as your programmer and you as a programmer you have to be aware of the ethical implications of what it is that you're doing so that's definitely another another problem that arises with these new innovations that people have to keep track of there's i mean a lot of communities right with no access to mm -hmm. internet services uh, mm -hmm. one they don't know how to use them and number two now with the internet getting so expensive there's a lot of communities that will not have access to either smartphones mm -hmm. or internet services so how would you reach these communities would you would you send representatives there to be around with the people and and help them connect or are they are they not able to connect well that depends because um some services like if we're talking about you know me specifically or we're talking about in general like telehealth i mean in general mental health services in general uh, online mental health services yeah so for online definitely it's it's going to be a problem um i mean everywhere electricity has become a problem everywhere it's become become very expensive um so yeah, uh, definitely I see it as being a limitation. There's only so much that like an NGO could, like NGOs in these respective, you know, like districts that they operate in, that they can do. I think to some extent, we have to be aware of, like there's a spectrum I think between like mental health and psychiatry. And then on the other hand, and um, like structural factors. And structural factors basically meaning the economic and political factors that are kind of impacting our situation and our mental health to be the way that it is. And it's a it's an unfortunate reality that for some of the resources such as such as like um, telehealth, et cetera, really you have to tackle the structural factors pure, like before you can tackle the mental health. You know, there's a hierarchy of needs kind of of what needs to be tackled, unfortunately. So for them, what the priority would have to be to at least psychologically stabilize them while you're working on these structural factors so that you can give them aid and not just kind of like, you know, focus on, on fixing the country because that's going to take a very long time, right? Um, it's it's going to have to be live initiatives. It's going to be have to be dispatching more people to those remote areas, unfortunately, especially if we're talking like, again, more towards the borders of the country. It's the kind of the sad reality, unfortunately. Yeah, and what you're saying makes so much sense, right? I mean, in faced with uh, the cumulative and compounding crises of Lebanon, uh, I guess it is normal to be depressed and it is normal right. to have anxiety, right? It's a normal reaction to an abnormal situation, right? Like if, if you're walking in Lebanon right now and saying Le'Veon Rose and you're not worried about anything, I, I would be worried about your coping mechanisms, right? You're Absolutely. either like in denial. Absolutely, uh, yeah. Um, uh, and um, if anything, like maybe us forcing ourselves to see la vie en rose for so long it, what is the problem. Is that like we were repressing so much and not dealing with so much. And it's not saying that it's acceptable for, for the psychological, for the mental health situation to be the, the way that it is. And we need to stabilize it as much as possible. But yeah, like things are pretty crap. <laughs> Yeah, but uh, you raised that point earlier, and I want us to back to it in terms of like the data set because I think that's really important. And we know like if you put bullshit in, you get bullshit out, mm -hmm. right? So yeah, uh, that that's like the number one like mantra right now, and like AI is like the data set. Like that's it's only important to have like a local uh, programmer and someone who understands the culture. But where do you get your data set, and how do you make sure it's diverse? Because uh, if what you have is uh, a like one dimensional and uh, uh, if, if, if you have like a racist data set, right? Then you build in racism and 
all those problems into your uh, AI product. So uh, I guess how how are uh, your strategy about getting like a well-represented uh, and well-rounded uh, data set in Lebanon and the Middle East? So if we're talking uh, in Lebanon and the Middle East, it would be the same kind of uh, kinds of models that we use for recruiting people for research in general. Like you have to, um, again, because it's important to know your communities, you have to know your communities, you have to know like what kinds of communities it is that you want to be represented. You have to focus, if anything, not just be aware of, but focus on the vulnerable communities because those are the ones that will be more difficult to have awareness to, to put in. And it's easier to leave them out because of because people tend to focus on the mainstream. Um, and, you know, like, for example, if we're thinking Lebanon, we're thinking you have to think about domestic workers. You have to think about, like, for them, maybe you can't deliver things in Arabic, but if we're talking about mental health in general or research about mental health in general, you have to keep in mind these, you know, these communities. You have to think about refugees. You have to think about people from, from all sorts of different religious sects. You have to think about people who are, you know, not just refugees in general as a bundle, but maybe people who have been double displaced. So that's the thing. You have to know your community, and based off of that, you have to know who it is that is most likely to be left behind and then add them into your data set. I think it's been a good uh, good podcast uh, discussing uh, the, the potential innovations in Lebanon and the Middle East, but uh, what are your thoughts about the future of AI and uh, and telehealth, te mental telehealth in Lebanon and the region? I know when we discuss Lebanon and the region, I mean, all of us can see that I think there's a huge gap uh, between the different countries in the region. I think some countries are getting to be a lot ahead of other countries. Uh, but how do you see the future specifically in Lebanon and potentially in other countries in the region? So what I see, first of all, in general, and then I'll go, I'll focus a bit more into the specifics of Lebanon. What I see in general, what I'm very interested in, and I think breaks away very nicely from the traditional chemical theory of, of psychiatry, is basically what's called neurocomputation. And what neurocomputation is, is basically that you take the neuron and you see how it encodes information. And then the, the, the information that the neuron encodes, you basically create mathematical and statistical models to model um, certain cognitive processes. So basically you're taking your hardware, which is the neuron, and seeing what kind of software it produces based off of ma mathematical modeling. So how does this neuron make this kind of subjective experience, right? Now we've been able to do this at a very basic level, like, okay, when neurons do this, and basically they create this kind of neural, neural pattern, it's this kind of software, which is the experience of pain. And so what I'm hoping to do and what I'm hoping psychiatry will do is that we can develop this further and make models for more complex cognitive function till we know basically how to mathematically model out conscious experience. And based off of that, you can then start modeling um, deviations from the norm, quote unquote. So then you can start figuring out schizophrenia, like what, what kind of deviances in mathematical modeling happen there? What's, your, what's the difference in the software for mania? What's the difference in software for all of these different things? And I think that we don't have a physiological model for how the brain works. We have one for the kidney, we have one for all of those things. And based off of that, we can make deviances of, we can see how deviances of those things, deviations of those things can produce pathology. 
we need a physiological model, in my opinion, of the brain. And I think neural computation is the answer to that. It's figuring out how software, how the software that is consciousness is produced. And so um, I'm hoping to see that everywhere. Um, if we could do that in Lebanon, I mean, we have a lot of bright minds. If we could produce some kind of a multidisciplinary approach to, to researching this, especially that, you know, we have a lot of diversity in Lebanon, a lot of cultural diversity. And I think it takes diversity to be able to take on such a project. I mean, that would be something that would be the dream, really. So that's kind of my vision of, of psychiatry. That's, that's beautiful. And um, it's, it's a really exciting time uh, to be working in psychiatry. Like I said, there's so much innovation going on, whether through the brain-gut interface and the microbiota, mm -hmm. and whether through artificial intelligence and your computation, just so much innovation going on. Uh, the brain is really uh, a mysterious organ, and I think uh, now's the time to explore all of that. And hopefully, uh, a lot of patients will, will benefit from all the innovation going on. There's a lot of effort, uh, like you said, into like commercializing uh, the products, which, which can be a good thing and a bad thing. But I think uh, there's, there's a big need. And um, with people like you at the forefront of innovation and uh, bringing all this new technology to patients in need, in real time, live, and, and learning as you go, right? That, that's the only way to do it. I, I really congratulate you on all your efforts and uh, can't wait to see uh, what the future holds. Thank you very much. I, th that was very kind. Thank you. And I hope, you know, I, I, hope, I hope to see these, these dreams come true. In Lebanon, in Lebanon especially, I hope. Inshallah, inshallah. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, thank you. Great. Thanks to both of you for being on the podcast. And uh, Sarah, we will be following your, your progress on the app and updating everyone on uh, where we get with this. But that's great work. Thank you. And thank you both so much for having me. And I had a wonderful time and a very interesting conversation indeed. <laughs> yeah, and we should say that Sarah just finished a night shift. So I'm, I'm really <laughs> impressed that she's that coherent and able to form full sentences and did not crash halfway through. So. <laughs> It's the high of sleep deprivation. <laughs> but thank you. Really, thank you. Thanks. Our pleasure. All right, then.